0: his crimes of the centuries. Betty Gao went to each of the three windows in the little boy's bedroom to make sure the shutters were closed and locked for the night, but one set gave her trouble. This house was a new construction and an expensive one at that, So you'd think it wouldn't have problems like this, but the wood on one of these brand new shutters was warped, just one set on a single window. Betty called over the boy's mother, Anne, and the two women tried together to force the latch closed, but they just couldn't do it. So Betty left, that one set unlocked, put the toddler in his crib and waited in the room until she could tell by his breathing that he'd fallen asleep. Two and a half hours later, she went to check on the baby. Quietly padding into his bedroom, she intentionally left the lights out so as not to startle the boy. But as soon as she crossed the threshold, she knew something was wrong. She couldn't hear little Charlie's breathing. She inched closer and peeked inside the crib. It was empty. Betty rushed down the hallway where Anne was taking a bath. Clearly, Anne didn't have the baby. So Betty's thoughts jumped to Charlie's father. He'd been known to play jokes on his staff before. And one time, that guy had actually hidden Charlie in a closet for half an hour, playing dumb while Betty scoured the place looking for the kid. Maybe he was pulling her leg again? So she rushed downstairs to his study and blurted, do you have the baby? Charles Lindbergh looked confused. Isn't he in his crib? No, Betty said. Lindbergh darted up the stairs, met his wife at the empty crib, and said, they've stolen our baby. The date was March 1st, 1932, and the kidnapping of little Charlie Lindbergh would set off a firestorm like never before seen in U.S. history and result in a conviction that's still in controversy today. It's hard today to explain just how famous aviator Charles A. Lindbergh was in 1932. Five years prior, he had flown the Spirit of St. Louis, a single-engine, high-wing monoplane, from New York to Paris, making him the first to successfully complete a non-stop transatlantic flight. This was, in a word, huge. Wilbur and Orville Wright had just made their historic Kitty Hawk, North Carolina debut 24 years earlier in 1903. For 12 seconds and 120 feet. So for Lindbergh to pull off 33 and a half hours and 3,500 miles with no co pilot? Well, the world knew it was no meaningless parlor trick. This was proof that aviation was on the cusp of changing the world. When Lindbergh landed in Paris, some 150,000 people thronged the airstrip.
1: Awaiting. Lindbergh. Lindbergh is coming down the gangplank. A dying, nice boy. Unassuming, quiet, very serious, and awfully nice.
0: Back home, he got 2 million telegrams and letters congratulating his achievement, and 4 million people attended a ticker tape parade in his honor. It was a public response like never before seen, one that certainly caught Lindbergh more than a little off guard. He came home a national hero and an incredibly rich man. A hotel owner named Raymond Orteig had, in 1919, offered a $25,000 prize to the first person to do what Lindbergh did. Even though it took some eight years for him to do it, Lindbergh was awarded that 25 dollars which would be about $375,000 in today's money. Not only that, but he released an autobiography called We within three months of the flight that became a wildly popular bestseller, and he wrote a bunch of articles for newspapers. All of this made him a straight up millionaire, even before we translate for inflation. And this guy was more famous than any of the country's politicians or actors or musicians. He was routinely described as the most famous man in the world, not just America. That popularity hadn't waned by the time he married writer Ann Morrow two years later in May 1929, nor had it remotely diminished when the couple welcomed their firstborn son June 22, 1930, which happened to be his mother Ann's 24th birthday. Charles Lindbergh had earned a few nicknames in his lifetime, Slim, courtesy of his friends before he was famous, and Lucky Lindy, courtesy of the press afterward. When he departed on that history-making flight, newspapers also referred to him as the Lone Eagle. Charlie Jr. got his own nickname, Little Lindy and the Eaglet. The origin of paparazzi photography is often dated to the 1950s, but the way the press salivated for every tidbit surrounding the Lindbergh family reminds us that it's only the term paparazzi that's a mid-20th century invention. The photography style began far earlier. The press pounced on little Charlie's every move, Charlie playing in his backyard, Charlie cuddling his mother, Charlie's first family portrait, Charlie celebrating his first birthday. At that milestone, reporters made a point to say that the famed aviator's firstborn hadn't himself been on a plane yet. I mean, a photo appeared on front pages nationwide in July, 1930, beneath the headline, first photo of Charles A. Lindbergh, Jr. Most of the attention was well-intentioned, even fawning, but not all of it. By 1932, the country was mired in a brutal depression that was nowhere near over, and here was this family with so much money and this little boy who would want for nothing his whole life. Well, someone decided Lindy's luck should run out.
1: See the end second story window? That's the very nursery window against which the kidnappers placed that ladder under cover of night and stole away with baby Lindbergh.
0: How it happened still confounds some 90 years later and for a lot of reasons. The Lindberghs were building a house, present tense, not past, as in it was still under construction. Because of that, they were only staying there on the weekends. The new build was in Hopewell, New Jersey, but during the week, The family stayed at the Morrow Estate in Englewood, New Jersey, nicknamed Next Day Hill. That's where they should have been the night of March 1st, a Monday, but it so happened that little Charlie had a cold and Anne thought it would be better for him to stay put a little longer in the new house, situated in the fresh air of Sourland Mountains. Whoever kidnapped Charlie seems to have known that the family had changed their usual routine which was odd because that's, of course, not something they could just post to Twitter at the time. Also, the kidnapping happened while everyone was home. Everyone. Charles Sr. was supposed to be giving a talk that night, but he mixed up the dates and uncharacteristically didn't show. Instead, he came home from the day's other appointments at around 8 p.m., He shouldn't have been home, and yet he was actually working in his study just beneath his son's nursery when the kidnapper struck. After Betty Gow, Charlie's live-in nurse, alerted the family to Charlie's disappearance, Lindbergh ordered a butler to call police while he grabbed a rifle. He rushed outside to look for a bandit, but found none. A white envelope had been left in Charlie's room. Inside it was a poorly written note that was hard to decipher in spots But the gist of it was clear. Charlie was being held for $50,000 ransom. Lindbergh was warned not to involve the police, but he didn't even read the note until the cops arrived, so that ship had sailed. Word about the brazen kidnapping spread first throughout the area, and then the world.
1: Not a single bet is overlooked. Not a single suspicion unverified. In the search for the most famous baby in the world. Innocent, led, twenty month old son of the lone eagle and his mate. The victim of as cruel and fiendish a crime as any human can be guilty of.
0: Search parties scoured the property, nicknamed the High Fields. Strangers drove from all over the country, either to help or to just gawk. This is A. Scott Berg, an author whose biography, Lindbergh, won a Pulitzer in 1998.
1: I mean, the cops had to say, please stay away because we're afraid you might find some evidence and destroy it. But you couldn't stop people. That night, just torchlight everywhere. I mean, from five miles away, you could see the lights surrounding The the Lindbergh House.
0: The new house had been built on 390 acres. It was no coincidence that its construction was coming to an end at the same time the end of Anne's second pregnancy was nearing. The whole point of the place was that it was hard to reach and secluded, something the Lindberghs desperately wanted so they could raise their growing family away from the prying eyes
1: of the public. This airplane view of the Lindbergh House shows its isolated location near Hopewell, New Jersey. The $50,000 mansion stands far back from the public road.
0: In the aftermath of the kidnapping, here are the clues found by police and volunteers. About 75 feet away from the house, a janky homemade ladder had been abandoned. It had been built in three sections, but only two sections had been connected together, which made sense when propped against the house. With two sections, the ladder reached just below Charlie's nursery window, With three, the ladder would have overshot the window. Beneath that window were two deep grooves in the earth, which was soft due to recent rain. The legs of the discarded ladder fit perfectly in those grooves. Also, one of the rungs on the ladder was broken, which made sense when Charles Lindbergh mentioned that while he was working in his study, he at some point heard a loud bang. He described it as the sound of an orange crate in the kitchen, maybe toppling off a chair. He'd paused his work and listened for more, but all was quiet, and he shrugged it off. It would seem that he'd actually heard the kidnapping in progress, but didn't have a clue. Footprints led away from the ladder. Police tried to make a plaster cast of those prints, but they weren't typical shoe prints. It appeared that whoever had left them had worn socks on top of their shoes or maybe tied their feet in some burlap or other material in order to undermine their evidentiary value. And it worked. Police could get a general sense of the foot size, but that was really it. What they could see, though, was where the prints led. Investigators followed them away from the window until they passed the discarded ladder and disappeared at the road dogs brought in to track the smell stopped there too, which meant that whoever made the prints likely climbed into a car and drove away. Going back to the scrawled note left in Charlie's bedroom, it seemed perfectly clear what had happened here. The worries the Lindberghs had had about the public's infatuation with them had proved more than justified. Someone stole their child and was keeping him hostage until the ransom was paid. Charles Lindbergh decided straight away that he would cooperate. Anything, he said, to bring home Charlie. There is no modern day analogy to point to that would truly correspond with the kidnapping of little Charlie Lindbergh. But remember Lady Gaga's dogs? A few months ago, the pop star's dog walker was accosted and even shot by someone who managed to steal two of her three dogs. And the whole world wanted to help. Newspapers ran the story, TV broadcasters talked about it breathlessly, and well-intentioned busybodies appeared from the woodwork because it was clear Gaga was suffering and those poor dogs were innocents caught in the crossfire. Take that situation and inject it with some medical-grade steroids, And you still won't reach the hysteria that surrounded the Lindbergh kidnapping.
1: Lindbergh, the man who shunned cheap notoriety, and his grieving wife had been thrust into the headlines. New Jersey's District Attorney David Willens and his staff conducted their burdensome assignment amid a wave of morbid public curiosity.
0: The busybodies came out in such numbers that the many players are hard to keep straight. Some were certainly aiming to be helpful. Their hearts hurt for these worried parents, and they wanted to do whatever they could to help. And that happened in Lady Gaga's case too, helping to ensure that she got her dogs back. But with the Lindbergh case, some of the attention came from people who were only a step or two away from the kidnappers themselves, at least when it comes to morality. They saw an opportunity that they figured could pay off big, and they jumped at it. From his jail cell in Chicago, notorious gangster Al Capone offered to help. The day after the abduction, he announced a reward of $10,000 for the safe return of the Lindbergh baby and the capture of his kidnappers. Capone said, quote, it's the most outrageous thing I ever heard of. I know how Mrs. Capone and I would feel if our son were kidnapped. And I sympathize with the Lindberghs, end quote. Of course, there was a catch. Capone had just months earlier been sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion and was being held in the county jail pending his appeals. He said, if I were out of jail, I could be of real assistance. Charles Lindbergh welcomed any help, but said he wouldn't help spring Capone even if it saved a life. Still, Capone's offer sparked a theory. Maybe the kidnapping had been the work of the criminal underworld. Lindbergh attorney, Henry Breckenridge, especially thought this scenario likely. He suggested to the Lindberghs that they accept an offer from a bootlegger and con man named Morris Rosner. Rosner had long been connected to the New York underworld. Charles Lindbergh agreed, and Rosner came to the Hopewell home where he was filled in on every little detail known thus far. Rosner demanded to work at Lindbergh's house so that he would have the most current info possible about the crime. And he demanded that police not follow him as he made his connections. His primary goal, he said, was to save the baby, not lead cops to the captors. This was fine by Lindbergh, who kept insisting that the police stand down, a request to which they oddly acquiesced. Lindbergh told the gung-ho cops that aggressively going after the kidnappers would put little Charlie's life in danger. So the focus first had to be on getting the boy back. Then they could do whatever they needed to to find the culprits. Through Rosner, Lindbergh met two other princes of New York's underbelly. Salvi Spitali and Irving Blitz.
1: A flash from the Lindbergh estate. It reads as follows. If the kidnappers of our child are unwilling to deal directly, we fully authorize Salvi Spitali and Irving Blitz to act as our go-betweens. We will also follow any other method suggested by the kidnappers that we can be sure will bring the return of our child.
0: The idea was that whoever stole Charlie might want to keep a distance from Lindbergh and law enforcement. So instead, he could deal with these two fellow criminals instead. It's hard to say how sincere Spitali and Blitz had been when first offering to help, but their involvement quickly became a joke. They'd set up a makeshift office and a speakeasy behind the New York Daily News building. Spitali soon told a reporter that he wished he'd never gotten mixed up in the kidnapping. He didn't like the attention, nor did he like that newspapers were running not just photos of him, but also of his wife and kids. Inside the Lindbergh home, the couple's staff was questioned. Some investigators were sure that someone working for the Lindberghs had to have either intentionally or unwittingly given away information that helped the kidnapper, like the fact that one shutter didn't lock properly. I would have questioned the builder, too, but that's just me. Everyone on staff denied this. Most had worked for Anne's parents at their estate before working for the Lindberghs, so they'd been loyal to the family for years. Still, the police interrogations were so harsh that one employee eventually poisoned herself after telling a coworker that the cops would never interview her again. Meanwhile, Rosner, the bootlegger, on March 12th announced he'd received assurances that the baby was alive and well and would be safely returned to his parents. And this was a huge relief to both parents, but especially to Anne. Through reporters, she had pleaded with the kidnappers to take good care of Charlie. She even gave instructions on what to feed him because of his cold. She said he needed orange juice, cooked cereal and vegetables, and two tablespoons of stewed fruit. Rosner said that his informants specifically referenced Ann's diet requests. They promised that little Charlie was being cared for just as his mother had asked. Meanwhile, more ransom notes arrived. One expressed annoyance that police were involved despite the original notes warning not to involve law enforcement. This new note said, you know, now there's so much attention on the case that we'll have to hold Charlie longer so the fervor subsides and probably hire an additional person to pull off the job. So the ransom demand was upped from $50,000 to $70,000. Each of the ransom notes, there would be 15 in total, bore a unique symbol at the bottom to make it clear that they were the real deal and not some copycat nonsense. The symbol was a pair of overlapping circles on the insides of which were short squiggly lines. Three holes were punched in the paper, one on either side of the design, and the third one, smack dab in the center in the overlap portion. That middle hole was also encircled in red. If that's hard to visualize, that's because it's a weird-ass symbol, which apparently was a whole point. But it wasn't just the symbol that made the notes unique. So did the handwriting. This is a Dr. Schulhopper, a German handwriting expert. In my opinion,
1: the fact is unmistakable that all 15 ransom notes were written by a man raised and educated in Germany.
0: That was based on misspellings that seemed to point to German as the writer's native language. For example, good was repeatedly misspelled as G-U-T-E. The German word for good is G-U-T. While the underworld characters supposedly entrusted to solve the case kept spinning their wheels, another apparent do-gooder, wrote a letter to the editor of the Bronx Home News. In the letter, he offered to act as intermediary between the kidnappers and the Lindberghs. John F. Condon was a 71-year-old Bronx resident who'd taught in New York City schools for some four decades. He was self-important and boisterous and just the type of guy to insert himself in the biggest story in the country. The day after his offer ran in the paper, he received a letter from the kidnapper saying, sure, you be the intermediary. When Condon reached out to the Lindberghs, they didn't pay him much mind until he mentioned the strange interlocking circles at the bottom of the letter. After learning that, the Lindberghs asked him to come to Hopewell. It was decided that Condon needed a code name, so he used his initials, JFC, to come up with the moniker JFC. Here he is in his first media address.
1: I have been asked to say a few words concerning the most dastardly crime of modern time. The baby will be returned, I hope. In a short time, we are in contact and nobody is giving up.
0: Weeks had passed since the kidnapping. The Lindberghs got the $70,000 ready in the specific denominations that had been outlined in one of the many ransom notes. Most of the bills were small, which was going to make tracing them pretty tricky. Even though the FBI recorded every serial number, they'd be hard-pressed to get cashiers to inspect 5 and $10 bills when they were so incredibly common. The tacked-on $20,000 was in bigger bills, though, which investigators hoped would be easier to trace. Plus, some of the money was supplied not in paper dollars that we use today, but in gold certificates. In 1932, the U.S. was still on the gold standard, and many people who were untrusting of banks after the crash of 1929 began hoarding money in gold certificates. This becomes important later. Jaffsey got further communication from the kidnappers, which instructed him to go to a cemetery for a meeting. On March 12th, Jaffsey went and encountered a man who would forever be dubbed Cemetery John, which sounds more like a Neil Gaiman book than a real person, but whatever. Cemetery John was described as having what sounded like either a German or Scandinavian accent. This meeting at the Woodlawn Cemetery on Jerome Avenue wasn't the ransom drop though. Rather, Jaffsey said he needed proof that this guy, this John, he was meeting actually had Charlie. He also tried to convince John to hand over Charlie at the same time he received the ransom money, but the kidnapper said, no way. That would take away my leverage to make a clean getaway. Instead, John said, once he got the money, the Lindberghs would be notified of Charlie's location within eight hours. The meeting ended with John promising to send the sleep suit Charlie had been wearing the night of his kidnapping as proof he had the kid. A few days later, the suit arrived. It was called a Dr. Denton sleep suit. It basically was a one-piece footed pajama that went high to the neck in an almost mock turtleneck. Advertisements of this thing claimed kids slept better in them because they were made with unbleached cotton blended with soft wool, creating a supposedly hygienic knit fabric. Charlie had been wearing one atop a flannel nightshirt. Once Jaffsy got the sleep suit in the mail, he rushed it to Charles, who examined it closely. Despite the suit having recently been laundered, which was weird, Charles said, "'Yes, this is the sleepwear my son was wearing "'when he disappeared.'" It seemed Cemetery John was the real deal. But the letters from him slowed. Days would slip by without a word, and Charles Lindbergh, antsy, to feel like he was doing something productive, would take meetings with pretty much anyone who claimed to be able to help. Finally, a letter arrived that said, it's time. In fact, it said, if the ransom isn't paid by April 8th, the price goes up to $100,000 instead of the $70,000 where it now stood. Jaffsey placed an ad in the newspaper. Money is ready, Jaffsey. After a few more back and forths, Jaffsy one night got a visitor. A man at the door said his name was Joseph Perrone. He was a taxi driver who had been stopped by what looked to be a fair, only to be asked to deliver an envelope to John F. Condon. The faux fair paid Perrone $1 to run the errand, which he did. Jaffsy ripped open the letter and realized it was a demand to go right then to finally deliver the money. Jaffsy had a box made of wood matching the dimensions that one ransom note had described, a curiously specific 14 by 7 by 6 inches. He shoved the money inside, and Charles Lindbergh drove him to the St. Raymond Cemetery. Jaffsy grabbed the box, crammed with money, and then, as he was about to leave the car, peeled off all of the $50 bills which basically comprised the entire $20,000 that had been added on to the original demand. Jaffsy told Lindbergh with confidence that he was sure the kidnapper would be satisfied with $50,000, and he wanted to save Lindbergh some money if he could help it. So, with $50,000 in hand, Jaffsy walked toward the cemetery. At first, he encountered no one. He started to get worried that he'd been stood up. But then a voice called out, Hey, doctor. It was loud enough that Lindbergh could hear it, and he noticed the voice had an accent. Condon had all along made things a bit more dramatic than necessary, and the money drop was no exception. He demanded to get a written receipt. He later said that was to verify the handwriting matched the many ransom notes he'd received. But whatever the reason, it slowed down the meeting. Finally, after Cemetery John handed over a receipt... Jaffsy passed along the wooden box of money. Cemetery John opened it and counted it, at which point Jaffsy explained that they could only get their hands on $50,000, and the guy said, okay. Jaffsy had been right. He accepted 20 grand less without hesitation. Then he handed Jaffsy an envelope that he said contained Charlie's whereabouts, though he said no one should open the envelope for eight hours. Well, fat chance on that, of course. Once Jaffsy got back to Lindbergh's car, they ripped open the envelope straight away. The note said the baby was on a boat called Nelly off the Elizabeth Islands near Cape Cod. Well, actually, it was on the boat Nelly, B-O-A-D. Again, the ransom writer wasn't the best speller. The search for Charlie began. His dad got an airplane ready, and he and some volunteers began searching the waters near Cape Cod. Anytime he spotted a boat, he would swoop down and check it out. Sometimes volunteers on boats below would question the various skippers. None had Charlie aboard.
1: It was up here at Vineyard Haven where the kidnappers were supposed to have been, and also at the harbor of Menemsha. It was in this country that Lindbergh was told to fly, over Cuddyhunk and Martha's Vineyard. He was to be shown the spot where his baby had been found, but his trip was in vain.
0: Days passed. Jaffsey placed an ad in the newspaper asking, Hey, what gives? Well, more precisely, it said, quote, What is wrong? Have you crossed me? Please better directions, Jaffsey. End quote. But there would be no better directions provided. There would be no further contact from the kidnapper, period. Jaffsey had been played.
1: Condon and Charles Lindbergh deliver $50,000 to a cemetery in the Bronx. The ransom is accepted, but the Lindbergh baby is not returned. One month later, near the Lindbergh estate, the baby's body is found.
0: On May 3rd, so two months after Charlie's abduction, a trucker had pulled off the side of the road to pee he tromped through some brush so he wouldn't be seen relieving himself by cars driving by and came upon the decomposed remains of a small child. Author A. Scott Berg again.
1: Immediately the police came. Lindbergh had to go to identify the remains. He did identify the baby. There is no question this was the Lindbergh baby.
0: The autopsy suggested that Charlie had probably died the very night of the kidnapping. He had a fractured skull. And while it was tough to properly examine him because he'd been outside for so long, the coroner said that the inside of the skull showed that there had been a hemorrhage. The theory was that the kidnapper had built a ladder that could handle his weight, but not the added weight of the baby. One of the rungs was broken, if you remember. Maybe Charlie was dropped at that point, killing him. Maybe the kidnapper tore off his sleep suit because he figured somebody would demand proof he had the baby, and he needed to keep the ruse going to secure his payoff. Or maybe the kidnapper never had plans to keep a 20-month-old baby alive and hidden for weeks on end. Maybe the plan was always to kill him. Whatever happened, Charlie was dead. His parents were devastated, and now police were set loose to find the killer. After Charlie Lindbergh's body was found a few miles from the Hopewell home from which he'd been kidnapped, bits of the ransom money started popping up around New York. A $5 bill would show up in a store, maybe $10 in another store. Thing was, though, most of the time, no one really noticed those denominations. They were too small to stand out. Remember, Jaffsey had peeled off the 20 dollars and $50 bills, which infuriated police when they learned of it. Jaffsy might have been trying to save the Lindberghs some dough, but he had ditched the easiest-to-trace bills. What did start to stand out, though, were the gold certificates. In 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt took the U.S. off the gold standard and recalled all gold. The gold certificates were supposed to be turned in and converted to legal tender. I mean, this didn't happen all at once, of course. Gold certificates were still accepted by plenty of merchants. It's just they were becoming so rare that it stood out when someone used one. Federal investigators learned time and again of someone passing some of the ransom money, and only occasionally would the person reporting it say they remembered who presented it. Meanwhile, the FBI was pursuing other avenues too. They had painstakingly analyzed the wood used on the kidnap ladder, and managed to figure out that it had been sold at a hardware store in the Bronx. The bills that showed up always seemed to be in that area, too. Two and a half years passed like this. Then, one day, the taxi driver mentioned earlier, Joseph Perrone, the one who was paid to deliver a letter from the kidnappers to Jaffee's home, spotted the man who had paid him. He saw him coming out of a business and then climb into a car to drive off. Perone followed him in his cab. He noted another place the man visited, then another, and then Perone lost him, but not before he had jotted down the man's license plate. Perone gave the license plate info to the police, and the tag came back registered to a man named Richard Bruno Hopman. Now in the 1930s, there wasn't criminal profiling like we know it today. Still, the investigators in this case had made some inferences based on bits of evidence. For example, they were sure the kidnapper was German, that he was a carpenter, and that he lived in or near the Bronx. This guy, Hauptmann, checked all those boxes. He was married with a young son. Manfred had been born about two years after Charlie was killed. Bruno Hauptmann worked odd jobs and in fact hadn't worked at all for more than a year. And yet, when police visited, they noticed surprisingly expensive furniture throughout the house. But what really piqued investigators' interest was that after Perone told them about the businesses he'd seen Hopman visit, one of them reported getting a ransom bill. This can't be a coincidence, police thought. So they questioned Hopman, who denied any involvement. Then they searched his house and found money hidden everywhere money with serial numbers matching the ransom dough. Some money was hidden in a can buried beneath the garage. More was found hidden inside of holes cut into wooden beams in the garage. Then they found a wall in Hopman's son's bedroom that had a phone number and address scrawled on it in pencil. The contact information happened to belong to John F. Condon, a.k.a. Jafsi. Hopman said he had gotten the money from a guy named Isidore Fish, who had inconveniently died just that year. He hid the money, Hopman said, because he'd found it in a box Fish had given him to watch and figured that Fish's family might come back for it. He didn't want that, so he concealed the money and kept its existence hidden from his wife, Anna. Investigators didn't buy it.
1: Flemington Courthouse staged the sensational murder trial. In a court packed with representatives of every big newspaper in the world, the state charged the German carpenter Hauptmann with the murder. Colonel Lindbergh swore that the body was that of his little son. Then emotions were stirred as Mrs. Lindbergh braved the ordeal of the witness stand and identified the baby's clothes.
0: Perrone wasn't the only witness who said he recognized Hauptmann.
1: A host of other eyewitnesses connect Bruno Hauptmann with the ransom money. Uh, Hopman drove into my station and pulled up to an apple pump and asked for five gallons of gas. I identified Bruno Richard Hopman. I identified Bruno Richard Hopman. Bruno nice Richard Hauptman was the man who came to the Sheridan Theater and handed me one of the five dollar ransom bills.
0: Here's Berg describing more evidence presented in trial against Hopman.
1: In some very strange ransom notes with strange handwriting strange German spellings, a strange mark on each note, but they were able to trace the money to this man. They were able to trace the wood in the ladder to wood that Bruno Hauptmann had purchased. I mean, there was an FBI man who had literally traced, you see, the the markings in the wood. And of course, the handwriting was a real giveaway.
0: Well, it was possible Hauptmann didn't work alone, The evidence against him was pretty compelling. I mean, prone the cab driver recognized him. I don't trust eyewitness identification much, but the cabbie happened to point out a man who just so happened to have ransom money all over his house? That's a bit too tidy. But that probably wasn't the evidence that convinced the jury.
1: There was, make no mistake about it, a mountain of evidence against this man. But what really did it was Lindbergh himself took the stand, and he was asked if he recognized the voice of the man. The money was handed over to And he claimed some years later, even though it was just a few syllables, and it was from 100 yards away, in the night that he recognized that voice. It didn't matter if if he did, if he didn't, whether it was, whether it wasn't. Charles Lindbergh, God himself, had said, that's the man that stole my baby.
0: In February, 1935, Bruno Hopman was convicted of murder.
1: A defense appeal was rushed to the state capitol at Trenton where the prosecution fought to uphold the death penalty. Hopman's defense attorneys faced documented proof of their client's guilt.
0: Hotman's appeals failed. On April 3rd, 1936, he was executed in the electric chair at the New Jersey State
1: Prison. Flash, United Press, Trenton, Huffman executed, 8, 47 and one half. A morbid crowd outside the prison has gathered to watch the hearse leave.
0: Nearly 40 years later, a journalist named Anthony Scaduto wrote a book called Scapegoat in which he argued vehemently that Hopman was innocent. He said that anti-German sentiment clouded the case from the start, that each of the eyewitnesses had lied, and that police had planted all of the physical evidence. Hopman's wife, Anna, also kept insisting her husband had nothing to do with the kidnapping. She said she routinely heard people screaming, kill the German during the trial. And when you look at the newspaper coverage from the time, it's pretty clear reporters were certain he was guilty just by the way they framed the stories. One said Hopman, fit the picture.
1: Hoffman, though he continued to deny his guilt, was finally trapped. In
0: 1981, at age 82, Anna sued the state of New Jersey for wrongfully, corruptly, and unjustly trying and executing her husband. She wanted to clear his name, she said then. She didn't win her suit, but she did manage to turn the Hoffman conviction into a controversial one. Some websites are even dedicated to the conspiracy theory that Lindbergh himself killed his own son, or that Charlie never died at all. Easily a dozen people stepped forward claiming to be baby Lindbergh over the years, including infamously a Black woman. The questions are widespread enough that when I started this research, I thought I was going to find that Hotman's conviction was a rush to judgment based on emotion rather than evidence. Well... There was a lot of emotion in the case, no question. But there really was a lot of evidence, too. I tend to side with Berg.
1: There is no doubt in my mind that Bruno Richard Hauptmann committed the crime, that he kidnapped the baby, the ladder split, the baby fell to the concrete below, died instantly, and he carried on this this charade of saying, the baby's still alive, give me the ransom money. I am just as certain that this man got a truly unfair trial. He was a condemned man from the very beginning.
0: And even a guilty man can get an unfair trial, after all. After the drama quieted, Lindbergh and his wife, Anne, who by then had given birth to their second son, named John, decided they were done with America. They turned the Hopewell house into an orphanage, and moved to London. They went on to have four more children together. Sometime in the 40s or 50s, Charles Lindbergh's personal life turned into a soap opera. He's said to have had as many as seven more children with three mistresses. But that mystery is for another podcast. To research this story, I read two separate Lindbergh books, both of which were terrible. I didn't read A. Scott Berg's book, but I did watch several lectures he gave. I also watched countless newsreels and read the exhaustive coverage at the time. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.